Hello everyone, this is Susan Montero from Get In, the college prep program for young musicians that covers everything from college and university choices to audition and interview prep. We assist in the transformation from high school to college to life. Think about it. You are stepping out on stage, and although you may be looking confident, you don't feel it. Maybe you're afraid you will have a huge memory slip or one of your strings will break. Maybe you are afraid you will trip and fall into the open piano, never to be seen again. But there's one thing for certain. We all feel performance nerves. And since auditions are coming up, I want to talk about just that. The guest on my show today is none other than Noah Kagiyama, the performance psychology coach at the Juilliard School of Music. As far as I'm concerned, he is absolutely one of the top experts in the field of performance psychology, and during this interview, you will see why I know this. I gave a short intro before we began our interview, but I do want to give a little bit more information about him before we go to the interview. So, along with being a Juilliard graduate with a BA in psychology and a master's in music and music performance. (laughs) Noah received his MS and PhD in counseling and counseling psychology from Indiana University. Noah specializes in performing artists and how to utilize sports psychology principles to more consistently demonstrate their full abilities under pressure. He has conducted workshops at institutions including Northwestern University, New England Conservatory, Peabody, Eastman, and the U.S. Armed Forces School of Music. He taught at programs such as the Starling Delay Symposium, the Perlman Music Program, and the National Orchestral Institute. And for organizations like the Music Teachers National Association and the National Association of Teachers of Singing. Noah has also been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Musical America, Strings Magazine, Strad, and Lifehacker. He maintains a private coaching practice and writes a performance psychology blog the Bulletproof Musician. If you have not read that, you should. I read it. It comes out every Sunday. And this blog has more than 100,000 monthly readers. He is also doing a workshop in October, so you will want to keep an eye out for that. And just to make it a bit easier for you, I will put a link to his website in the show notes, and you can sign up there. So let's get started with the interview, shall we? Hi, everyone. This is Susan Montero, and I'm super excited to be interviewing my guest today, Noah Kageyama, as a performance psychologist who is on the faculty at the Juilliard School of Music and the performance psychology coach for the New World Symphony. You're still doing that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, excellent. Okay. And you travel around giving workshops and you do online classes, which you're doing one in October, correct? Yes. Yes. Excellent. I want to talk about that at the very end. And you have a degree in psychology. A master's in performance at Juilliard and a master of science PhD in counseling and counseling psychology from Indiana University. You were made to do this. <laughs> you have created this. This is excellent. Okay. And you specialize in teaching performing artists how to utilize sports psychology principles to more consistently demonstrate their full abilities on stage and under pressure. And mastering performance skills is something that every single musician needs. I don't know anyone who doesn't. And you've been doing this for a long time, haven't you? It's getting longer by, uh, yeah, every passing year. How, how long have you been doing it? 
you don't mind me. Not as long as as maybe it 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 seems, but so yeah, I started um doing this around two thousand six, two thousand seven. Oh, that's a long time. Super long. Yeah, it's twenty twenty two now. Yeah, I can't do the math yeah. in my head. <laughs> yeah. I won't either. We'll just skip that. Let people listening figure it out with their phone calculators. Um, so, okay, so you've been doing this for quite a while, and I want to know, personally, what made you interested in doing this in the first place? This is Because they were doing this for sports, right? But not music. Right. And I didn't even know that this was happening for sports until I got to grad school. I mean, my whole life, I'd wondered about nerves. I remember being nervous when I was like five and didn't know what to call it, didn't know what to do about it, just thought it was normal, certainly didn't enjoy it, um, and was always frustrated about underperforming on stage and even recordings for auditions and stuff never really seemed to go the way that I wanted and knew that based on how I sounded in the practice room, I should sound better, but didn't know how to. And even in the practice room, it's like, I didn't really know how to improve in a consistent way. Just felt like I'd put in the time and hope that something better would come out the other end, but sometimes it did, sometimes it didn't. So like, it was really all in all, like, it's a good thing that I enjoyed playing with other people. Like, I did enjoy the playing part of music. And it's a good thing, because otherwise, I don't know what would have made me stay with it, because performing was so nerve-wracking and, again, inconsistent crapshoot. And practicing felt like a chore every single day. So um, that was what kind of set the stage for me being curious about sports psychology when I came across it. And honestly, by that point, you know, I was like twenty. Two, I was like, what am I going to learn that I haven't already come across or read about already? And I was, and also I was a psych major in college, like in order to get out of orchestra and theory and ear training and history and stuff, I, I kind of exploited a loophole and, and pretended to be a double degree student for like three and a half years. Um, and so I was a psych major just, you know, to have something else to do while I continue to take lessons and so forth. And I never learned about sports psych in my psych degree, it never came up, never heard about it. So I was like, you know, I've taken psychology. Like, I don't see how a lot of this is you know, related to performing. And so then I went to Juilliard and Don Green was teaching a class on sports psych. And I was like, I don't know what this is, but sounds interesting, I suppose, and not hoping for very much, but I'll take it. And so I did and was surprised pretty immediately, maybe even just from the time I saw the syllabus, at how many of the questions I'd had for most of my life seemed to have answers. And not just, you know, Don's answers, but answers that were based in research that got that had gone back decades and had been there the whole time, but I never came across or didn't know existed. So at that point, I started actually trying to put this into practice. And um you know, my second year there, there was a big competition that I did. And I always had trouble with motivation even then uh, to practice and really prepare. I mean, we're talking multiple rounds, like recital programs upon concertos, upon new pieces and so forth. So I was much more interested in like hanging out with my girlfriend that summer who, who now is my wife. And so that worked out well, but still at the time, it wasn't the most conducive to practicing sort of situation that I could have come up with for myself. Um, and so I, I knew I was kind of in trouble going into the competition because I just, you know, the third movie of the concerto wasn't really learned, definitely wasn't memorized. There were some other show pieces that I had 
worked on, but like not for a couple months because I needed to put all of my time into the things that were in the first round. And so I was in bad shape, but I, you know, went to the competition and got through the first round and I played better than I really should have played because I was really focused. Like I was able to block things out. I was in the zone and so forth. So I was like, okay, that, that was surprising kind of. Um, and then I played well enough to get past to the second round. And so I was like, uh Oh, um, I, you know, it was a really long day of, of trying to cram as much as I could. Like I had the box Chacon playing on the CD player, like 12 hours constantly overnight from like breakfast, you know, from dinner the night before through my sleep until I woke up the next morning and trying to get everything in my head. And the next day, you know, the second round actually also went better than it should have. Did have a bit of a memory issue in the box. Turns out it wasn't memorized. So <laughs> then, but still I was like, wow, you know, the more of the story shouldn't be that I don't have to practice. It's just imagine if I did practice and I had these skills to go along with it. Um, and so that kind of sold me on how practically useful they were. And as I, you know, finished up my degree there and continued on a little bit, I started feeling differently about practicing, actually, like practicing seemed worthwhile instead of just hoping something better would come out the other end. Like I could see tangibly, like from day to day, week to week that, oh, these problems are getting solved and they're staying solved, which was incredibly empowering and like a big boost to my confidence and and so you know around that time I was like okay so this is something that actually intrigues me more than playing itself and so I wonder if it's worth pursuing and uh, I wasn't sure what else to do at the time actually and so I was like okay let's stay in school and go to Indiana and, and see what this might look like. Huh, that's so interesting I think a lot of people they, you know, this happens to so many musicians, especially because we're going to talk about people auditioning for college. And and I I know for myself too, it was like when I was learning the violin, well, I'm still learning the violin, but performance was such an afterthought. You know, it was like, I didn't practice performing only, I mean, I only practiced performing when I was performing. And at that point it's too late, you know? So that, and then psychologically it puts you in this hole. So I think um, noticing those little steps and then taking that, uh, the class by Don Green, really, yeah, it, it, it's just a different way of looking at everything, the, things that we don't even talk about. There's a really good book too, is a, I think it's called the Mental Toughness Training for Sports. Yeah, Jim Lair has been a sports psychologist forever. I remember reading his articles in Tennis Magazine when I was like 12. And uh, yeah, new mental toughness training for sports. I think is is the name of the book. It's relatively old, but I think still very relevant. Yeah, I think so too. I had a, I had a friend who was an oboe player, and he was he was going to audition for the Cleveland Orchestra, and he could. He said he never got out of first rounds ever, and he read that book, and he he said he followed it like page for page, and he actually got into the finals there, and he was he said and you know no end roll or anything because you know, a lot of people take that, but he took nothing. He got through and he said, this works. It, was, it absolutely does. I don't know how long they've had sports psychology, but I think it's about time that people do it for music, you know? So that was pretty eye-opening. I, I didn't know that you went through all that. So you didn't want to be a concert soloist afterwards. I mean, I grew up assuming that that's what I wanted, but then it turns out, that wasn't what I wanted. And I found something that was actually 
um, something I, I more naturally geeked out about all the time. Yeah, right? Yeah, that's pretty cool. And then, like, for you now, um, do what you do. How do you go about helping out students or, or even adults? Because you work with everyone, you know. So how do you, like, what, you have just online classes or you do one-on-one classes? And, and I've taken some of your classes. So I don't know. Go ahead and describe how would you work with someone? Yeah, you know, initially when I started, I thought this was, you know, I came from like a counseling psychology background. So I just assumed that it was a one-on-one process. Uh, But then, you know, I started teaching at Juilliard and, you know, classes are around 20 students or so. And, and actually the class format in some ways can be more helpful um, than working one-on-one, at least in terms of time, like you're able to work with a bunch of people who have different perspectives, play different instruments, are working on different things at different goals. And I mean, yesterday, for instance, we were talking about some of the, like the in-performance triggers or like pet peeves or just things that kind of throw us. And, you know, one person was describing how, you know, they have this irrational fear of dropping the bow. And they said, it doesn't make any sense. I've never done it, but like, I still worry about it. It's super distracting. And then I told them, I was like, yeah, you know what, for what it's worth, that is not an uncommon fear to have for people play string instruments. And and I wasn't expecting this at all. I just wanted them to know that. And then the next, the next person, there were just a bunch of string players lined up in a row. The next person says, blah, blah, blah. And also the bow thing. And then the next person is like, yeah, the bow thing. And also blah, blah, blah. And then I feel like I'm exaggerating when I say this, but I'm not. It was like five or six of the next people in line describing what, what gets them describe the bow thing. And so that person learned that, wow, these people who I play with, who I respect, who I look up to maybe, they have the same exact thoughts going through my their heads that I have in mind. I'm not such a weirdo after all. And it feels very different to come out of class feeling like you're part of this community of people who worry about dropping their bow. And, and that's just one tiny example about the ways in which classes can be um, kind of enhancing to our sense of what we're experiencing. Because uh, usually we experience it with no context or idea of what the rest of the world around us is experiencing. And so so that, you know, <clears throat> eventually turned into um, self-paced classes or courses online, which are essentially a way of me taking what I'm teaching at school and um, allowing people to have that access to that at home. Because some people do, I think, learn better when they don't have to worry about other people and they just kind of focus on the things that they want to and skip around and jump around and stuff. Uh, but in, especially in the last couple of years with everybody now being on Zoom, whether we want to or not, um, online live classes <clears throat> have become a thing. And I've honestly, like not to geek out about this, but like I've actually been pleasantly surprised and I really enjoy the live online classes. I wasn't sure that I would. Um, because what I discovered, and it actually was an adjustment for me to go back to live, like in-person classes, because I forgot that in live in-person classes, when you ask a question, students have to like wait patiently for other students to finish answering the question or offering their thoughts. Like they can't all just chime in at the same time. Whereas in Zoom, they can. And so A, it's just more efficient because you're seeing all these responses and then you're seeing common threads and you're seeing themes and um, and this, like the exchange of ideas and information and the interactivity in a way, and the online classes, there's a part of me that kind of prefers that because it just 
faster and it's like richer in a way um people have to worry about well so and so seems like they want to say something do i wait and like then they forget what they're going to say and um so i mean that's again a small example of the ways in which the zoom classes can be better but another one even is in class trying to get everyone to play simultaneously is always a little bit awkward when they're going to try something they're like what am i going to play and like i don't want to play too loud so and so's right here but if they're all in their own individual zoom rooms in their own living room or bedroom practice room they're very enthusiastic and happy to try things because nobody's listening and then i can get their feedback again simultaneously on what that experience is like and what they took away from it and um so yeah so yeah and i, I geek out of that technology but those are some of the things that I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah, because I've taken some of your classes, which is why I was so excited that you would come and talk to me. Um, you're right. It's You're in the comfort of your... You can actually explore more when you feel more comfortable, you know? So yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I actually love taking Zoom classes. And then everyone can. They can go in the chat and type stuff down. And, they, and I can see people supporting each other, you know, during that, which you can't get that in a live situation you know and also i have to add disrupting yeah, exactly right they can't disrupt I, I i actually did drop my bow during a performance right before it came in i actually caught it before it hit the floor oh, nice. that was i wasn't even looking but I, yeah that was not uh, that's a performance i won't forget what's well, art number five <laughs> yeah master class oh boy um <laughs> so that was not a unrational irrational feel for me um oh you know what too like for for what you have noticed during your your years of coaching what's the most typical and biggest biggest problems that people have like it anyone yeah you know I, I, what's interesting to me is it usually starts with a lot of the physical stuff right like shaky bow uh, dry mouth sweaty hands um but as we start working on things and and kind of exploring what's going on and what might lead to that and what we can do about it. Often it starts shifting away from the physical stuff and more to the mental stuff, like, you know, the critic internally that we have or the inner chatter, um, like worrying about things like memory or difficult passages or beating ourselves up for things that just happened. And um, a lot of times the things that seem to get in the way of work consistently optimal performances and even enjoying performing more is attention related which initially seems like like yeah i don't care about attention like i just want to you know be more calm and be able to to play more physically comfortably but uh it turns out you know there's there's not much of a difference physically between the times when we're excited and the times when we're nervous and so the goal even for athletes often is to try to tap into that sense of excitement as opposed to anxiety because then that's actually facilitated for performance. We're able to perform better, even as musicians, um, not just, you know, 220 pound linebacker or something who's trying to tackle somebody, but even musicians. I mean, I think we've all had performances where it started off as nerves, but then we really got into it and we had started having a better time and it's going well. And it actually ended with us being excited and it being like a real thrill actually to have had the experience of playing like that with other musicians in front of an audience. And um, so the goal is really to get to that excited place like sooner in the performance, instead of having to like wade through the first part of it, um, kind of sweating bullets and then hoping 
to end in that excited place. But uh, but yeah, a lot of it tends to be attention related, our ability to make sure that we're not thinking things that um, disrupt our performance or make us more nervous or lead us to get distracted in ways that are not helpful. Yeah, that's, that's true. I think even for myself too, it's just like these mental gymnastics I'm going through, you know, I'll be fine. And then all of a sudden, for some reason, just out of the blue, I'll just, I'll be playing and then I'll think, what's the next note? It's just that one simple little thought. And then all of a sudden I start worrying about that. And then it's like this whirlwind of next note. Okay, what's the next note? You know, or I'll hit a note out of tune and then I'm thinking about it, you know, on the next page. I'm still thinking about that D sharp that, you know, it's it's so bizarre. And it what to me, it shows how powerful the mind is, you know, because you've got all this stuff going on. You're still playing. Yeah. You're still following through with all these actions. It's really fascinating to me how we don't, I don't know how, I think it just shows how strong we actually are that we're not just like crumpling down, you know. I actually, I work a lot with kids. And um, that, so when I, I, I love working with kids, I get to see them, they're so fresh and excited, you know. And then watching them perform, I remember I had one little one, she was so cute. She was playing a little song and I could see her, she's terrified, but you know, she did it. She got out there. So I told her that when we were done, because she was, she felt bad. And I said, you did not leave that stage. I know you wanted to, but you stuck it out. You stayed there. You've got what it takes. Right. So she was so cute. She was on there and I could just see her like going back, like she's stepping back. She's playing, she's, she's going back. She wanted to get behind the piano, you know, <laughs> it was so cute. But, you know, from that point where they're little kids and, and as adults, I still feel like, like we've got that in us like we're still little kids when we get up there it's these, you know not paying attention at all it's it's really fascinating to me because wish i would have gotten into that um and then too for younger musicians because your workshops you're doing another workshop coming up okay they're going to audition for college right and what would you think is the most important for them to to understand or i'm sorry why do you think it's important for them to understand performance psychology for them? Well, I think for me, it was, <clears throat> I just had such frustrating experiences with the inconsistency in performance. You know, with college auditions, you feel like, okay, I want to prepare well enough so that when I go there at this school or that school, I'm going to be able to play in a way that represents how I think I can play, like how my teacher hears me and how I sound every day in the living room. Um, and, and I didn't have the confidence that I'd be able to do that because I didn't really know how to prepare in such a way, like you were saying earlier, uh, I mean, you know, Glamian I think famously said, we do too little performance practice too late. Of course, even if I knew that I, I didn't really know what that was supposed to look like. I mean, outside of just doing a bunch of run-throughs playing for, you know, my dog or the next door neighbor, like I didn't really know what else to do. And like all these other skills around building confidence and you know getting centered before you play and getting into the right headspace and being able to recover from mistakes and stay present and engaged and focused and not look into the past like you were saying or worry about the future and not get obsessed about notes we missed or memory possibilities like the ability to like that didn't seem like a skill to me like I didn't even know what those things were and once I started understanding that a lot of the things that characterized my best performances didn't have to happen by chance if I practiced long enough, but were actually things that I could cultivate in advance and plan for and replicate 
even if I didn't have time to practice a ton, you know, between auditions with school and SATs and all that, to know that I could still play as well as I could play under less than ideal circumstances was like just incredibly just made performing funner and like more like a challenge than like this awful thing that I had to endure. <clears throat> and so I, my, my whole thing is I would love more students and musicians to have that experience because it can make the whole thing that we, for whatever reason, have decided to do um, a much more pleasant journey and experience whether like in my case you don't ultimately continue with it or whether you do continue with it i think it's very transferable i mean a lot of the things that i learned and used for violin i still use to this day with other things like speaking or presenting or teaching and so forth so um so yeah it, it's it's a skill set that doesn't go underutilized no matter what direction life ends up taking us in yeah yeah I um uh, they, they, that's interesting. I, I do notice too, um, just being young, like, cause I work with high schoolers and going to college too. And, uh, and I remember when I was that age too, also thinking, well, you know, kind of like you're invincible. You know, like I, I always felt like, Oh, that's not going to happen to me or oh, until it happens. So I do when I, when I work with them, I always try and make sure that like, say they have to do volunteer hours or whatever for, to graduate. And I'll say, take those volunteer hours and you can use those as performance opportunities but if you're you know you're doing it to um to give to people like at an assisted living center like here's another example too for for uh what music can do right music can i have had them perform and i perform myself for alzheimer's patients okay and one thing i noticed um i i always pick music from their era and i would and i'd get up and i'd say the song and they were just usually they're just sitting there and then i'd start playing the song you know, whatever it was, Duke Ellington or something. And, um, and I saw them, they, they light up, they know the words, which was fascinating to me. They remembered the words, but they don't remember what they had for breakfast in the morning, you know, or their caretakers. And then there was one man, I remember him, he was in a wheelchair and my students were performing. So I, I got to, you know, stand back and watch, but he was in a wheelchair. He was completely incapacitated, just sitting there. And I saw his, his finger moving and he was tapping to the beat of the music and in Temo. And I thought that's getting to you, you know? So music, I think too, if you, if they, as young people can use that as, as therapy for, you know, for other people, and then it kind of takes the load off a little and then they can focus on, you know, that. And, and why I'm getting into this too, is because I'm seeing a lot of students right now struggling with you know they're starting school again and just got out of lockdown it was what two and a half years and i think we've we've all been going through the same thing together but kind of alone you know and so now they're all being tossed back together and i'm seeing them get very anxious and very stressed out so i'm wondering too you know as a psychologist what you know we're you know talking about how music can help other people how can you know they can use their own music to help themselves, you know, through this, especially going to college, right? They've gone through this. Now, all of a sudden, they're leaving their safety net, their family, their friends. They're going somewhere completely different with different expectations. And so, and then coming out of this pandemic and then going into that, I, I would just, I can't imagine how they must feel right now. So could you give any like tips on 
like maybe how they could use music for their own benefit. Yeah, well, I think your example of playing for audiences that find it really meaningful, right? Like when your students are there playing, they're not trying to impress anybody. Okay. Like they can see that what they're doing has great meaning and it and it changes their experience of that day. Uh, I mean, I don't mean your students only, but you know, the people who are there listening, like it's, it's a meaningful, important moment for them. Something that they, you know, brings a little light into their day. Um, and I think that's a helpful way of experiencing performing in a way that feels less about trying to prove anything and more about getting that, you know, music exists because we enjoy it. Like, you know, when we're sad, we want to listen to certain music when we're, excited or happy there's certain music we want to listen to like it exists for a reason and, and I think sometimes because of the nature of the training and how long it takes to get good at something and what that means and all that it's really easy just like sports sometimes I think we forget that sports are, are games that we enjoy playing right. just about the millions of dollars or the sponsorships or things like that but um, so similarly I think with music I don't know why this surprised me but Frank Almond, uh, you know, is now retired from the concertmaster position in Milwaukee, but uh, got to chat with him once. And he said that, you know, sometimes he'll just whip out some Bach and play it for fun with no intentions of trying to make it any better than it is. He just, you know, he likes it. <laughs> and so you play it for a little while and then you'll practice some other stuff that needs work. But, um, but that's the sort of thing that, I mean, I was thinking about class when you asked that question yesterday too, where we're doing some performance practice where we're trying to see if we can distract the person who's playing. Um, Cause then we'll know that their focus was disrupted. And so if they smile, then we know that we totally got to them. Um, and so one of the violists in class uh, is friends with the person playing. And so we started playing the, uh, the Nintendo Wii. I don't know if it's the theme song, but like the little, like kind of like lobby type music when you're building your little character. <laughs> Like, and, you know, he's playing it on the viola and, and he's doing a really good job of it. It's not like, clearly he wasn't just making it up on the spot. I don't think like, I think he's actually worked it out. Um, <laughs> and so things like that, like, it's like, oh, okay, cool. So this kid has been practicing randomly the Nintendo, you know, Wii theme song and presumably other things as well on the viola just for kicks. And so I think we forget that we have the ability to like, play things other than what's printed on pages. I mean, like my daughter isn't super serious about the piano, but what she really enjoyed doing was playing, um, you know, like the office theme song <laughs> or um, uh, like, you know, the uh, one of the Disney Pixar movies, like Up, like there's a, a tune that she liked playing from there. Like the Super Mario Brothers, like theme song. Like she enjoyed playing those things sometimes more than her actual repertoire. And <laughs> I think giving ourselves permission to like use our skills to like amuse ourselves by playing things that are fun for us to play. I mean, Mark Hossler is another example. He's a principal cellist at Cleveland. You know, when we were kids and he'd be in rehearsal and get a little bored, he'd start playing. I think it was like the, I think the NBA used to be on NBC or something. And there was like this, this sort of like eighties, like nineties, like metal sort of music that would play, you know, to introduce the segments. And uh, he would play that like just on the cello and, you know, got better over time because he figured out like which chords to use and like how to play it. And um, nothing that he ever needed, I don't think professionally, but 
it still developed his skills and it was a fun thing for him to do. And so, yeah, I think, I think we can give ourselves permission to have a little more fun or less serious music activity. Yeah, I think they have an orchestra specific. It was created at UCLA just with the students to play gamer music. Oh, yeah. awesome. And I, my son loves the game. He's 17. He loves doing gaming. As I think all teenagers do, but um, he he used to play Minecraft, and I remember playing Minecraft with him when it first came out. He was really little, and I'm like, "What is this Minecraft?" So I'd get on the game with him and play it, just so you know, what are these zombies and stuff? And I remember the music being so relaxing. Have you heard Minecraft music? I have. I, I don't remember anymore what it is, but I've heard a good bit of it. Yeah, <laughs> it's almost this, these like ethereal, like just little notes pulled out of the air, and it's very. I don't know what it was. It was almost mesmerizing, and I thought. You know, the game really actually, it, it's fantastic. It teaches coding and all this other stuff and building. And you, you have to build with this game. But I do distinctly, I completely remember the music for that. I couldn't sing it to you because it didn't really make any sense to me. But I found it very relaxing. And I think even, you know, just, I, I think it's a great idea by copying that type of music. Or um, I could tell my son's a gamer. Breath of the Wild. You ever, you ever heard of that game? Legend of Zelda. Okay, it's <laughs> it is a phenomenal game, and the music is it's incredible. Like so, maybe I don't know. They could probably even get people together and then just you know make their own. Now, see if they perform that at high school, those kids will, or like junior high, they'd be like a rock star. I think you know with their, <laughs> with their quartet. Yeah. Just, yeah. Well, yeah. It's sort of like being in a band. That's another thing. I think whether it's before they get to college or not, I think students sometimes, yeah, I think it's different now, but sometimes students, you know, don't have the opportunity to play with other, other musicians um, and to, you know, in, in somewhat unstructured ways, right. So to playing your quartets, yes, but then also doing a four part, you know, Minecraft, medley of some kind i don't know what like you know yeah so I so i think that can be a lot of fun actually it doesn't have to be all seriousness yeah i think yeah i think that is that's a good idea i think it's, to do. it's uh it's definitely anyway i want to get into also now that they're getting back into school <laughs> like when are the auditions coming up because i want to talk about your program you're getting them people ready to audition for college how's that going yeah. yeah so i mean auditions are obviously in the spring or you know late winter and um they're often tapes too before then and so forth so i think usually i mean if, if it was me i started worrying about auditions really like the week or two before <laughs> the first auditions were taking place at which point it's kind of it's not that it's too late. There are things you can do, but like that's not the ideal time to be starting to worry about performance practice and different mental skills and how to prepare specifically for auditions. And so I was, I mean, I was also the kid who was finishing up applications the night before, the morning of, and parents had to rush to the post office before they shut their doors. And so I, I might not be representative, but but still, I think for me, the timing of this is, is kind of like now. So that way there doesn't have to be this pressure to like learn all this stuff and change things, but it's just gradually integrated into the sort of habitual workflow of your practice so that when you get to 
February, March, it doesn't feel like you really need to like step anything up necessarily. It's just a natural kind of progression of what you've been doing. And it's like, okay, I feel pretty prepared. How'd that happen? So, so yeah, so hence the timing of having like a fall um, session. And it's not specifically geared towards auditions for college as in let's prepare just for auditions. It's really about cultivating a set of skills that they'll be able to use beyond the auditions and learning how to practice more effectively using techniques that I don't think most folks outside of voter learning, you know, for decades really knew about, but are quite unusual, but also quite helpful and can make practicing more fun and effective, obviously, as well. And, you know, learning how to get into the right headspace before playing so that even if you're frazzled and you have to rush to the audition room and other people around and they sound good and whatnot, that that doesn't then kind of follow you into the room and affect, you know, how you end up playing in those three minutes and how to get into the zone more quickly. So it's not like you start hitting your stride as you are about to finish your audition, but like from the very first measure, it's like, all right, I'm in the right space. And then, you know, being able to build confidence and all those other sorts of things that helps with feeling like you can go in and you belong there and all that, so. Yeah, true, and that's different too. I mean, if they're auditioning for college, they they would have to go to the college. So, I mean, you have to, you have to travel. It's not like you're going down the street at your local church or something. It's, there's so much more um, going on there for them. Yeah, and when does it start, your your program? Starts um, the second weekend of October. Okay, so oh, that's coming up. A few weeks, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then it's all online. So anyone can go. Yeah. All right. What you sign up on your at your website? Yeah, there's a link at bullet bulletproofmusician.com slash learners. Okay. And I'm going to I'll put a link in the show notes. So they can cool. go check that out. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. And this is for uh just high school students. This would be for adults too or anyone. Because this looks like it goes beyond college also. Right? Yeah. You know what? I know the smart like business marketing thing to do is to limit it to a very narrow population. Mm -hmm. Honestly, every time I've done it, it's been a range of people and they've all benefited equally, but in different ways. And a lot of them have been adult learners. There've been a lot of college and grad level students as well. Uh, There's also been some high school students. And so it's, you know, you'll see different students or different participants approach it in different ways. Like the yeah. adults tend to be much more involved in the forums. Um, the younger students tend to be doing this more with like their friends or fellow studio members or their parents to a degree involved. Um, the college students also tend to be more inclined to kind of congregate within themselves. But, um, but yeah, so it, but content wise, it's all stuff that, universally seems to be relevant to all of us yeah it does doesn't it yeah because we're kind of all going through the same mental game really you know and then the preparation for that it's the preparation that's that's huge i mean no matter what your mental game could be if you're not prepared you know it's it's not gonna wait it might happen but it might not like you said before in your early years you know who knows what could happen and then oh how long is it is it like two weeks or a month or it's a four-week course, so four 90-minute oh. sessions on Saturdays. Oh. And you know, of course, there's a little bit of homework to do, like five minutes of homework a day, uh, just to get in the habit of, it's a little bit like lessons, right? Like you don't want to to teach a student and have them be like, oh, that was a great lesson. And then they go home, math homework kicks in, soccer practice kicks in, and 
like they don't even think about anything again until the next week. I mean, that was me at least. Maybe students aren't like that anymore. Oh, but, well, that was me too. Uh, but yeah. yeah, but with this, yeah, the goal was to have like a tiny bit of homework every day, and there's a little bit of accountability in the group, and there's some like micro recording assignments, like 10 seconds, 15 seconds, 20 seconds. So it's not so painful. And, um, and there's opportunities for feedback and all that. So, so the goal is to hopefully make it something where it does start to seep into your everyday activities, but not in a way like it feels like a chore and like there's pressure to do something. The goal is to make it pretty bite-sized and easy. You know, just I just had a question pop in my head um, because I have to ask you your opinion because I've heard this, you know, they'll say, oh, do something for a month and it becomes a habit. Did, what do you see with that happening? Like, how how do you develop that habit? Well, there's actually research on it and there's nothing magic about 21 days or a month, as it turns out. I mean, okay. it, it ranges quite a bit and I forget the the dates, but it can be, you know, as short as like you know, maybe single digit days all the way to like, you know, triple digit days. Like it just sort of depends. Um, and the complexity of what it is that you're trying to do also matters. And so unfortunately it's not a neat, clean, tidy number, mm. but it does seem to help um, to do whatever we can to just get started. I mean, I think a lot of times the hurdle in, in habits is getting started. So if there are ways of making it easier to get started, I think that would be more the goal than how many days can I sustain this? True, because it kind of does become a lifelong thing, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, it really does. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much for meeting with me today. And this is amazing. I think these kids really need to, I, I think having this for them now, because when I was a kid, we did not have this, you know, that's why I was dropping my bow during performance. I, I, I had no idea what to do or how to prepare or even that, I should prepare. That wasn't right. even, you know, that's how clueless. So right. this is a huge opportunity and I hope they all jump on this. I really do. And thank you so much. I'm going to yeah, end absolutely. this now. And yeah, thank you. And I, I, I kind of want to do this now. I've done your other ones before. I need a refresher though. Cause you know, life gets in the way. You can join if you want. I mean, the thing that I haven't been advertising, but I think I will now, is that, um, like, as you know, like, I always invite the educators back mm -hmm. to subsequent sessions. I haven't, like, kind of crossed them because I try to keep one for learners so that they don't feel like their teachers are, like, seeing, you know, I mean, it just kind of changes the dynamic in the field. But there have been a few folks who have asked if they could do this one and, and i've said yes so if you want to i can add you to the cohort for this if you would like oh yeah i would love to thanks same yeah. same content uh -huh. it's just going to be a different format with like the recordings and the commenting and, and all that kind of thing oh yeah i would love to yeah, well you know too like because because does it life gets in the way so if i could you know like people just can touch base here and there it just brings it back into your world again you know but I mean, you have kids and everything it's just mm -hmm. things start getting crazy you know and it's like you get thrown off and you need to get back on again this is perfect perfect way well thanks again i will let you get back to your your busy schedule because i know you got a lot going on and thanks yeah thank you yeah well thank you um i will add you to the court I, you'll probably get a notice i don't know next no in a couple of weeks maybe no next week oh, cool. uh, so. okay great i will thank you
I hope you all had a great time listening to this conversation with Noah. I know I did. And I always learn something new during these interviews, and I get to meet the most amazing people. That is one of my favorite things about doing this podcast. And remember, Noah is giving a four-week workshop next month in October, so you can sign up at his website, bulletproofmusician.com. And if you are unable to get to those classes, I will also have Noah as a guest in my Get In program, where he will give a workshop, and then the participants will be performing in mock auditions afterwards, and we will give feedback to each other and play and play and play and perform for each other online, and everyone's welcome. So we will help you get ready to rock it at your next college audition, whether you work with Noah or myself, and I suggest you jump on it and get yourself performing as soon as possible. You can work with me by signing up at my website, monteromusicstudio.com, or you can send me an email at monteromusicstudio.com at gmail.com and Montero is spelled M-O-N-T-E-I-R-O musicstudio at gmail.com until next time keep practicing keep exploring and keep growing see you later hello this is Susan Montero from Program Notes Book Club, an interactive book club where I have music, literature, authors, and a podcast. It's all together for you to enjoy. So today I'm interviewing Barbara Quick, the author of Vivaldi's Virgins. She is an amazing poet. They're also going to be making a movie out of Vivaldi's Virgins, and I believe it's actually being started now. So listen to the story about how Barbara came up with the idea to write this book. It's absolutely fascinating, and you get to hear a little bit about her amazing life, and I hope you enjoy this as much as I have. I absolutely love Barbara. She's a phenomenal artist. So have fun, sit back, have a cup of tea, and enjoy. Enjoy.